Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. For a long time, there have been various apps and platforms that promote free sharing, such as the Couchsurfer app and giveaway festivals, but what was missing was more need for these services. However, with the current state of unemployment, the demand for such resources has grown. ShareNet has been around since the inception of the internet, but only now are we seeing a significant surge in demand for it. Enter Occuhive, an app designed for groups of individuals squatting in buildings and sharing responsibilities. Each group forms a household, usually consisting of like-minded individuals or people of similar age ranges. These households tend to develop strong personalities over time. Occuhive tracks personal and shared spaces, and who each personal space belongs to. Squatters often face challenges such as sewer, water, and garbage problems, but the app provides courses on topics such as salvaging old solar panels, setting up commodes and grey water filtration, and building rain catchment systems to help establish a comfortable living space. The newly unemployed or homeless are a different class from those in the past, as they bring with them more skills and knowledge. They often feel out of place among traditional homeless communities, and seek support that won't cost them money. Occuhive serves as a tool to facilitate community building and officiating each member's duties, which must be checked off once completed. If a member neglects their duties or does a piss-poor job, their reputation may suffer, and they might be kicked out of the household. If kicked out, the app can scramble their connect link if they refuse to leave. In the future, they may not be able to use Occuhive to find a place to live anymore. The app serves ads, but people say they don't mind. Many want an open-source equivalent and are hoping one will come out soon. Group empowerment isn't a new practice, as communes have been doing it for decades. However, with the advent of social apps, this practice can be taken to a new level. For example, an app for sharing tools emerges. Some individuals disappointed with Occuhive's courses create an online school that delves deeper into surviving without a job. Students can learn skills such as making a marsh pond for filtering grey water, creating a bathing tank where fish clean the water, building a grinder for cardboard, and a treatment that turns it into litter for commodes. They also learn how to set up worm farms, dig flood wells, and insulate with used material. An app that facilitates giveaway spots becomes popular, where members can leave and take items. If someone finds something valuable but doesn't need it, they can leave it at a nearby giveaway spot. The household can take giveaway items to these spots every week, earning reputation points for leaving valuable items. A trading app also emerges, allowing users to trade goods and services with one another. As an example, someone who harvests water can trade with someone who rebuilds furniture. The Good Deeds app helps people show off when they've improved something that benefits a neighborhood. Users enjoy picking up garbage and posting before and after pictures on the app. Sometimes, they may receive a tip, but that's not why they do it. Yard gardens and grow rooms start popping up, and an app for growers emerges, helping them acquire equipment, fix equipment, share seeds, and much more. Established households can work together on various projects or provide security watch. Finally, a project party app turns job sharing into a large gathering where members can meet new people and have fun. Some people enjoy these parties so much that they wonder why it took so long for them to become popular. The newly jobless are rich in time, and they often say things like, I always felt like I needed more money, but what I didn't have enough of is time. These people aren't against money. Most jobless people still make and use a little money one way or another. 28-year-old Penn, formerly Bud, walks through some town, a neighborhood of Detroit occupied by the jobless. In places where hardened snow doesn't blanket the ground, thick ice makes him slip. 
He passes scrapped cars, a massive pile of kids' toys, barricaded entryways, outhouses, and stacked building material, all covered by inches of snow. In front and side yards, barrels and tanks wait to collect rainwater when the weather warms. Every year creative hands further alter these streets. A lion statue guards a bird pigeon coup. Frost clings to a mosaic mural depicting the Statue of Liberty waving a rainbow flag. Airblock coats many of the buildings. When applied wet, airblock expands like foam and gradually hardens like concrete while absorbing carbon from the air. People cover the entire outside of a building, creating a thick and sturdy shell. Before applying airblock, window and door frames need to be built out. With an R value of 9 per inch of thickness, airblock effectively seals off air leaks and makes any old building cozy in the winter and comfortable in the summer. It also provides excellent insulation against noise and windstorms. The formula is available in powder and can be mixed in a barrel. The cost of treating a two to three story building is approximately $60. It makes the buildings look like they're turning into mushrooms or made of mocha colored snow. Penn's temperature regulating long johns plugged into his solar coat pull warmth from the outside to the inside. His low grade bulletproof vest helps insulate him against the cold. He wears army surplus coveralls, a pair of mud boots, and some cleats his friend made him out of scrap metal and chain. His glasses show him markers where others have slipped on the ice. He listens to music that puts him in the holiday spirit. He feels good. Trying not to slide as he climbs a slope to what was a church, he says, taxi mark, coming in. The church hasn't been airpack coated. It's probably as cold as a barn in there. The double front doors click. He rushes forward and pushes his way in. His cleats scrape on the stone floor. The church was law offices in the 30s, and an open plan shows office doors on the first and second floor. All the office walls are glass, and some are covered over with cardboard, sheets, or what each resident found to privacy screen. Walls without covering reveal tents inside. Squatters will place a tent in a room to stay warm, sometimes a tent inside a tent. The people in this household spend most of their time in VR. Outside the offices, garbage piles up. They don't separate compost from the rest, so flies zigzag above it. Returnable space heaters set up here and there tick with heat. Each will alert giantess when its battery runs out, and a delivery robot will come and replace it. Penn frowns at the idea as inefficient and costly. The air still has a chill. Battery power stations and five-gallon water bottles crowd corners. When they do take out garbage, they just dump it in the empty lot next to the church. Seriously, these folks spend all their time in VR. From what he's seen, most are guys though some femmes emerge to show their mousy faces from time to time. This household is tight, but they all hate doing chores. Penn walks through the center of the building, past an 8-foot tall mech made to resemble a giant mech from a game. Penn has seen it in ads. The original stands taller than skyscrapers. Chipped and stressed crack paint on this smaller version makes it seem like an old prop from an amusement park. At least they went to some effort to decorate the place. Inside a tall shiny cylinder, a likeness of Penn appears and says, I am Bud. These hologram cylinders are usually clearer and brighter. This one won't last much longer. He taps on the door to Themarker's office. A winded voice calls out, come in. Penn pushes on the glass. Inside, a tall man suspended in a harness walks in the air, swings his arms, and says, Molini, let's take a break. You're doing good. Okay, I'll be back in five. He pulls his headset off and looks down at Penn. Hooks in the ceiling hold cables that hold up Themarker's harness. Despite the chill, Themarker wears an old sweater and shorts. Muscles stand out on his bare legs. He looks like a warlord, but smiles bashfully. A mattress leans against the wall on one side of the room. On the other, a shower kit is partly unfolded. The circular bar meant to hold the curtain stands three feet off the floor. The tank platform must hold the water for the shower and also collect used water. Portable, one-time use showers seem like the worst idea ever. How much water could you buy for the same amount of money? And sponging yourself off with a pot of water gets you just as clean. Penn says, aren't you cold? The marker says, no, I'm training a client. She wants to beat someone in ruins of Firebend. 
Pen says, ooh I like that game. It's hard but I like it. So, anything you need me to do. Themarker says, the sink is in training. The tattoos around his eyelids look like permanent eyeliner. Pen says, I can help with that. I'll update you. And $30 an hour like before. Themarker says, sure robot maids are only $5 an hour. Pen says, well, when robot maids can unclog a drain line, I'm out of a job. Themarker laughs and says, some of my trainees want me to charge them less. Everyone compares prices to robots fees. Pen says, yeah, the blessing that's a curse that's a blessing that's a curse. I'll let you know. He backs out of the doorway. Themarker nods nobly and says, okay friend. See you later. This household has an outhouse, but they also dump water down a sink that drains through a hose on the floor, outside, and into the street gutter. Again, they waste so much because the unplugged world bores them. Later, Pen hurries home, wanting to get there before it gets dark. Even in the dead of winter, he feels upbeat. Some people merely make the best of their situation, but Pen was made for the jobless way. In some town people admire him. He has needed skills and can give advice. If it's how to patch a leaky roof or what's the best camping solar generator for a squatter, he's the expert. Two people pull a cart with bike wheels. They're so bundled up that it's impossible to tell their ages. Both wear glasses that leak light, creating feathery glints. Somewhere indoors a live saxophone plays. Five strike cranes fly over making the air pulse as each passes. They fly over streets low enough not to interfere with commercial flights. It's kind of amazing they can run in such cold, and the falling snow doesn't build up on their propellers. Rich folks ride in those. A block ahead, the building he lives in casts light out onto the street, and figures congregate. His household, Green Wave, was one of the first in the area. He loves it, but his favorite people leave over time. He isn't 30 yet, but every time a new person joins, they seem younger. Every once in a while, a drug gang busts in and pistol whips residences because someone owes them money. Other households come over to see how Green Wave has set up all its utilities. Green Wave has one of the best buildings. More recently established squatter houses had to fix and patch degraded buildings. But people still guffaw when he tells them what house he belongs to. They say things like, oh, the stoner house. Maybe it's time to find a new household. He spends just as much time at Love Overcomes, the household next door, but Love Overcomes is all femmes and gay guys, so they probably wouldn't let him move in. Robo-maids and delivery bots visit Love Overcomes all the time, a sign that someone's earning Kashola. He can't be the only one making that conclusion. They better be careful. It looks like some people from Love Overcomes are walking up to the porch of his building. A party is probably starting. A face turns and looks at him, so he waves. They don't wave back. His glasses don't pin a name banner on them. They must be someone he hasn't met yet. Green Wave keeps two outhouses in a parking space. The company leaves outhouses and empties them to make fertilizer. You must be in poo separately, but the service is free or paid for with your body's ability to make high concentrations of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. He jogs the rest of the way. Ten people stand on and around the porch. Some carry boxes of twerp, the drink that everyone's choosing over beer these days. It tastes like frothy ginger, gets you buzzed fast, and leaves you with a much kinder hangover the next day. Some in the group wear glasses that show anime eyes on the outer lenses. The couple of the femmes wear baggy, hand-painted pants. Someone in the area makes painted on clothing. They look nice with patterns like sedimentary rock. Holding the icy rail, he steps carefully, making eye contact with all and anyone who glances his way and exchanging smiles. Nadine, a 25-year-old who likes to shoot hoops when she drinks, calls out, Pen, there's a pub dinner tonight. Coming. He says, where's it at? She says, it's at Eve's hairy girlfriend. Her mustard-colored hat makes her face look small. He pauses then says, oh, Eva's place. Squinting and showing her teeth she says, yeah. He says, let me see if my batch is done. He lets himself in. Inside, his glasses fog, so he takes them off. 
The household pulled the sheetrock off all the interior walls, leaving studs throughout the first floor. Clothes hang from lines. Electric bikes lean against studs. In the arts and crafts area, boxes of fabric, trinkets, string, glitter, glue, and so much more wait for members to feel creative. At two repair tables, someone left a power jack in pieces. Anyone can use one of the three stationary bikes hooked up to generators to charge batteries. Spinach and kale grow in the shared grow area. A large screen TV in the hangout room doesn't get much use in the winter, because the solar isn't bringing in a lot of power. Behind curtains, three old tubs used for sponge baths, drain into the grey water filtration system, a series of plastic barrels filled with rocks, sand, and activated charcoal. The household garbage is separated. Tin, aluminum, cardboard, plastic, fabrics, and electronics. A hand crank machine can shred garbage which the recycle companies pay more for. Metals can be sold. Everyone composts. Lots of the members find some way to repurpose, sell, or give away things they don't want anymore. They rarely need to dump garbage. They use the entire back as a kitchen. An airless composting tank makes methane that comes off the top in a tube. A valve on the tube controls the flow of methane into a heat brick oven. The bricks react with methane generating lots of heat without any fumes and locking up carbon in the ash that remains. Ice and snow melt in all sorts of pots. One shelf is dedicated to food items you can leave and take. He pulls his cleats off and takes the stairs two steps at a time. On the second floor, most of the doors are open and voices overlap in the hall. Vape hangs in the air. Behind one door someone moans with pleasure. It's the same femme who strikes up conversations with him in the kitchen. He takes the next flight of stairs to the third floor. Up here, the only open door down the hall casts light through the darkness. He passes two doors, then grabs the doorknob of the third door. It recognizes him and unlocks. These doorknobs spend all day charging off radio waves so they can unlock to assigned users. He didn't have a doorknob for a long time, but made some money and bought a new one for $1.05. In his room, he puts his glasses back on and says, light. An upside-down chandelier in the middle of the floor lights up. He salvaged it from a hotel. The cord plugs into his hydrogen-powered generator. Someone moves on his bed under the covers. Two industrial mixing bowls take up one side of his room, both half his height. It took weeks to clean them after he salvaged them from a closed bread factory. The rounded bottoms sit in heat-weave blankets, non-bestos interwoven with heat cords. Lifting a lid on one of the pots he inspects the yeast. It smells good, like fresh meat. The color is ripe. He takes out a pocket knife and slices out a piece. It cuts like meat. The plant matter texture is long gone, and it has a tough gel feel. It tastes like raw meat. The bitter yeast taste has disappeared. He inspects the second batch and decides it can incubate for another day or two. He says, call Maydeen. Maydeen's avatar appears in front of him. He says, hi Maydeen, one of my batches is ready, looks like I'll be down there. She says, great. See you there. Her avatar disappears. He pulls a cardboard box of plastic containers across the floor and begins filling them. A petite femme sits up in his bed. Her disheveled hair stands out like a mane. The curves of her cheekbones parallel her jawline. She wears long johns made of a new kind of fabric that heats up when she pulls, twists, and bends it. She rubs her eyes and says, where are you going? He says, oh hi Hazel. There's a stone soup party. Hazel says, can I come? The seven-foot door peep at Eva's place says, what do you got? His eyes and ears look small on his beefy head. Hazel lets go of Penn's arm as he turns and brings a container out from his follow cart. Penn opens the lid and says, it's homemade yeast meat, just like Sam's meat. The door peep says, you can do that. Penn says, I can after ordering the culture from a crazy commune. I'd eat it all myself, but my meat isn't pasteurized, so it goes bad just like meat meat. Mine hasn't been cooked yet either. I brought a hot plate and will cook it fresh tonight. He kisses the tips of his fingers and throws his hand open. You gotta try some. You're in for a treat. People line up behind the couple. The door peep nods and says, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. 
I'll look for your table. Pan looking at his Arkansas field says, oh, I want to pay for her too. The door peep says, just tap it twice. Pen taps the air twice and says, hit approve. The door peep says, yeah. Inside, they pick cups out off a table. Each used cup is different. Pan and Hazel fill their cups from a line of 20 kegs along one wall. His fall cart trails behind on 12-inch spoked wheels. Tall and narrow, the cart maneuvers well around people. This room could have been a meeting hall, dance hall, pull hall, or who knows. Now the dusty, musky hall hosts lots of scrappy dress folks setting out food on antique folding tables. Pen takes note of four tall heavy metal boxes with slit openings at eye level. He points and says, those are four if a mass shooter shows up. They can get inside those and take the shooter out. Hazel nods but shows more interest in checking out the crowd. They find a table, stash their coats under it, and set up the hydrogen canister powered hot plate. Others set out pots, baskets, boxes, and trays, all filled with edibles. Fresh smells compete for people's notice. Dingy curtains pull back on the stage. Eva herself walks out. With short gray hair and stout, she holds herself like Father Christmas and shouts, We're low on power, so open mic is acoustic tonight, unless you brought your own amplification. Hazel takes a seat while Penn slices meat and lays it on the plate. The sizzle and smell instantly draw hungry attention from many. He puts small servings on plates held out to him. A femme says, I've got carrots. Want to trade larger portions for carrots? He says, bring them by and let me see. Hazel says, I'm going to fill up our plates. Penn says, yes, tell me if anyone has something good for trading. Hazel says, I think it's you. She rolls her eyes and smirks. Eva comes by and says, oh my my. I haven't smelled that smell for so long. Tell me you killed something to get it. Penn shimmies and says, try some and see. She uses her fork to break off a piece, nibbles at it, and says, this tastes like Sam's meat when it first came out. Penn thinks about it and says, I guess it is. The crazy science commune got the yeast cultures before version 2 came out. She says, the original had the best nutrients and the least sugar. It may taste a little strong compared to today's version, but lots of people think it was better. He says, yeah, I guess the new stuff is sweeter, like the difference between hot dogs and sausages. She says, exactly. This really is the original. He nods while putting servings on other plates held out to him. She says, what can I give you for the rest of this? His eyes grow big. He says, well, I wanted to get a variety. How about half quickly she nods. After trading with her for a crate of hydrogen canisters, then trading the rest for assorted foodstuff, Pan cleans his hot plate with rags. He packs everything into his follow cart, sweeping on his third cup of twerp. Later in the night, he sits on a crowded bench. Hazel nuzzles him on one side, and a femme who stretches out her bare arm sits on the other side. A young femme wearing a denim color shirt and tie shouts from the stage, I've seen this time and again, people feeling down on themselves for being beaten by the robots. But do you know what people are fucking great at? It's making things and servicing others. For the robots to outperform us, they had to get so ridiculously good at it that the cost floor fell away. We used to need to sweat and bleed to make enough money. Those days are gone. At the same time that they said they didn't need us anymore, they made it so that we don't need to sell our lives away to get what we need. Do you see what I'm getting at? The greedy rich are taking down capitalism. Those robot people seriously screwed themselves up their own ass. They didn't devalue us, they devalued capitalism itself. We don't need to be consumers like before. Before, the rich had our time and effort, but they are losing that. Now, a lot of the corporations are sitting on bluts of money. They took all our money, but what are they going to do with it? They wouldn't use it to hire us so at that point it's in danger of not being money anymore. You and I will be just fine. It's for-profit capitalism that's imploding. At the table, Hazel says, I sold my DNA four times. The last time I only got $40 but I'll take it, why not? A skinny guy plucking on a battered violin says, I need to do that. She says, hey, do you have a bow for that? He shakes his head. 
The guy with wild eyes in the next group slaps the table and says, What kind of homeless are you? Pence says, What? The guy says, The game. Haven't you played it? His stocking hat glows brighter. Pete's and Pence group turn to the guy. The guy lifts his jar glass, tilts his head back, and says, So first there are those who would have been homeless, robots or no robots. Of those, you have the insane, the vets, the mentally handicapped, and the emotionally fucked up. Then you have the addicts, drunks, and antisocials. You have orphans and elderly whose retirement did not last. You have families, and most of those are single moms with kids. You have debtors and those who got a medical bill they can't pay. You see where I'm going with this. Of the homeless due to the robots, there are the depressed and hopeless who just want to find a real job. There are the smart homeless who used to have livable wages, former medical workers, bankers, programmers, and management. Some let themselves go, to drugs, become drunks. The violinist says, I've been depressed. I won't lie. The glowing hat guy says, there are the criminals, but some of those are only criminals out of necessity, while others are criminal by nature. There are the nice criminals who don't want to hurt you or me and they are the ones who are all scared of crossing paths with. Hazel says, I've been the nice criminal. Don't worry, I've only robbed from privs gone slumming who think they can buy me. Everyone jumps when Arkansas glasses go into alarm. All over the hall people yelp, duck and gasp as local alert appears right before them. The Arkansas alerts flash, and a buzz followed by the message find cover, local alert repeats. Some people act fast. Hall staff run to the armored boxes, unlock doors to side rooms, and yell at people to get up, so they can turn tables on their sides, letting plates and cups crash on the floor. Most panic. Some try to exit, but two staff lock the doors. People cower behind tables, hold each other, moan, and cry. Most lights turn off. Pan and Hazel hold hands as they jump over others to get to one of the smaller rooms. They squeeze into the crowded room and kneel on the floor. The only light comes through the door. When someone switches on their glasses lamp another person whispers, what are you doing? Switch that off. As those inside grow quiet they can hear sirens outside. Lots of people take off their glasses to get away from the alarm. After several minutes whispers pass through the crowd that the local shooter isn't in the hall, perhaps not even in this building. People breathe more easily. The 10 people who help run Eve's place quietly walk from group to group asking them to remain quiet. A femme asks, could the shooter still get in? A man with a flashlight says, the polyweave shutters are closed on all the windows, and the entrance is closed off with doors and gates. It'll be hard for anyone to get in. Gradually, people get to their feet. Some set tables upright and pick up spilled and broken items. Rapid fire gunshots crack outside. People freeze or fall to the floor. Penn and Hazel step out of the smaller room and return to the area where all their stuff is. They step around shards of ceramic, shattered glass, and a large pot spilling pudding. Penn uprights a bench and they both sit. Penn taps his glasses and says, tell me about the local alert. A dark complexion femme avatar appears for him and says, all American citizens received a local alert at 8.43 Eastern. Thousands, perhaps millions of drones are shooting civilians throughout the land. Everyone should stay inside and undercover. No area is safe. Cities, towns, and rural areas are all under attack. Don't go outside. Watch the skies. These drones have limited ammunition but there are clouds of them. Having been released within the borders, they're already spotted in every state of the Union. Hazel asks, what is it? Penn pauses while putting his thoughts together then says, it's not just Detroit. It's all over. In different parts of the hall, people talk in rushed whispers and cry. Hazel slaps his leg and says, what are you talking about? It can't be all of America. Penn's thoughts race. Where are his weapons? When did he last talk to his brother? What will he need to do if war breaks out within US borders? By the next day, most tables have been moved to the sides of the hall. Some people sit on benches and some on blankets on the floor. The air smells stale and sweaty. People listen at the windows for the buzzing sounds of cheaply made drones. Many watch the news on their glasses. The invading drones are each two-foot white quarkators. 
They fly in swarms in every state and land on rooftops to solar charge. Two senators, four representatives, 26 judges, and two commanders have been killed. Reports come in about drones shooting at civilians. Penn listens closely to each account. Penn and Hazel, follow cart not far behind, walk up to the two men by the front door. Penn says, hi, um, can you let us out? We'd like to get home. The men look at each other. The smaller one says, are you sure that's a good idea? We peek outside and have seen drones fly over all morning. Penn says, Hazel here trained in high school for the armed forces, and I grew up around preppers. The man says, I'd hate to have you go outside just to get shot right out front. Penn says, her and I'll probably volunteer to counterattack. So, we need to go do that. The two men look at each other and at the ground and finally let Penn and Hazel leave. A few others follow suit. Light reflects off the snow, brightening the empty streets. They hear only their feet breaking the icy surface of the snow. For several blocks, the only sign of life are faces peeking at them through darkened windows. Hazel holds his arm and says, Okay, we pass that porch, where will we take cover next? Penn says, Under that truck. They turn a corner by a tall apartment building. When they pass the building, an empty lot comes into view where about 40 drones rest on the snowy ground. A shiver goes down Penn's spine. He and Hazel bump each other as both stop and go and stop and go. Hazel quietly says, let's keep going. Numerous clicks precede the buzz of propellers starting to spin. The drones rise off the ground. Penn says, that house looks abandoned. They run. The follow cart slides as it speeds up. The drones spread out and fly down the road, some high, some low. The screen on the front door is closed, so Penn grabs Hazel's arm and pulls her down the stairs of the front basement entrance. He kicks the rotted door, and it falls to the side. They enter the darkness stepping over piles of rotted debris. Deep in the shadows they turn around and watch. The follow car teeters back and forth at the top of the steps. They still hear buzzing. Penn says, we didn't show weapons, and we aren't a target. Hazel says, what do you mean? He says, they're small and cheap so each one has a limited number of bullets. It puts limits on what they'll do. When they reach Green Wave House they're greeted with lots of hugs and squeals. One housemate rushes out to help bring in the follow cart. Everyone's scared because someone from the house went outside to shoot down drones. He went out streaming, and hundreds watched as ten drones shot him down. Now, his girlfriend and her two sisters sit on a couch, hats in hands, wiping their eyes. Nobly left off in the winter, the community TV shows the news. A man with a beard that covers his upper chest and wearing overalls, smiles at the camera as he holds up one of the drones. He says, I'll get $500 for turning this in. The off-camera reporter says, there's a reward. The bearded man says, the United States has put out a reward for each drone you take down. Let the hunting begin. Penn walks away from the others and toward the TV. He says, did you hear that? Hazel's posture tenses. Three more senators, two Supreme Court judges, and one governor have been killed. The drones also killed guards protecting some of the targets. The heir of what was a multi-billion dollar oil company was shot as her yacht neared New York Harbor. A 17-year-old creator of a hot new app flew off his bike when drones shot him down in an otherwise empty Phoenix intersection. An hour later, a report that two CEOs of Pairmobile were targeted as they came back from a no-net retreat in the mountains. Penn sits on a couch watching in the company of a dozen others. Hazel taps him on the shoulder and says, coming upstairs. He nods and says, the targets are all billionaires. How does anyone know the drones come from another country? Penn climbs stairs, at points needing to climb over broken furniture. The Tok Tok hologram blinks a red recording light in the left of his view, and he says, okay peeps, we're almost there. The viewer counter increases to 233. In the darkness of abandoned offices on the 33rd floor of a 64-story building, he pulls the pieces of his rifle out of the pockets, and assembles them on a dusty desk. 
He passes cubicles cluttered with moldy office equipment to the windows and looks down at a rooftop that extends three feet from the building two stories below. In the bright snow on the rooftop, twelve drones sun themselves. He rests his rifle on the floor. With a short crowbar, he pries the edge frame off a window. Unscrewing the widow frame from brackets takes 15 minutes and some cursing. Wedging the crowbar between the window frame and brick, he forces the top of the window out. The top leans in. He takes on all its weight and heaves while lowering it to the floor. Then he slides it and rests it against the wall. For a few minutes, he catches his breath and regains strength. He leans through the window, aims the rifle down, and fires at the drones. Aim, pop, aim, pop, aim, pop. Two drones shatter. The remaining buzz to life and fly up fast. Pen fires off a wild shot before falling back and hitting the floor. He rolls away from the window. Drones rise into view. As he trench crawls toward a desk. A drone outside the windowless opening fires and he feels a searing pain pierce his thigh. He gets behind the desk, but another shot hits him in the arm and knocks him back. He shuts his eyes tight. Seconds pass. The pain spreads out from his leg and arm. No reports talked about drones entering a building. He's out of view. Could they have ears? Thank you for listening. I will never run ads on this podcast. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show. My landing page is n20xx.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes an illustrated timeline and glossary.